Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. And I'm Grant. And if you're joining us for the very first time on this journey of discovering new and exciting music, we're glad that you are here. If you like what you're listening to, be sure to like, subscribe, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you want to meet some other good music appreciators, check out at Good Music Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and you can get information about upcoming episodes and more interesting things there as well. And if you're really particular about your music, you want the best music, you really want to support the Good Music Podcast, you want early episodes, you want the exclusive Bad Music Podcast where we just crap on the artists that we've spent two hours praising, then you're going to want to check out the link in the description. It goes to our Patreon page. And for a few bucks a month, you can get special perks that only patrons get. And thank you to all of our patrons for helping us make this podcast happen. I did just say, I did just say new and exciting music. And we're, uh, we're continuing our music history thing. So really, it's kind of old and exciting music. But well, even it's, it's still, new. It's new to uh, to the ears. It's new to the ear. Well, we we always do artists from from way back when, way back in the good old days. But we're really way back in the good old days. We're starting a new a new era. So, Lucas, bring us up to where we are right now. Okay, so um, this is a return to our uh, our history of music little sub series. And um, we left off last year at the end of an era, literally. <laughs> um, we finished off the, uh, the classical period. So um, when we started this series, we started back like literally as far back as you can go with music. Went all the way back to like, you know, 2000 B.C., I still think back on that episode and just like, man, people really had faith in us to to go along with this. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really glad that in a way y'all have uh, indulged me because it's been so much fun. And I hope to continue this series literally as far into the modern era as I can get. And um, yeah, so we have gone through um the greek and roman times the the dark ages the renaissance the baroque period the classical period and now here we are at the romantic period and i'm gonna just say this right off the top we are going to be here for the entire year oh so i hope y'all really like romantic music because we ain't going to be shifting for a while. 
Well, there's there's a lot there, I'm sure. There absolutely is. So let's just go ahead and, and jump in before we talk about specifically who this episode is about. Um, we need to talk about the romantic period. Like, what does this mean? What, what is the music like during this time period? Mm-hmm. So um, let's, let's first start off kind of where, where we left off with the classical period and kind of where, where things were so we can explain how things are transitioning. We got a, a little bit of a, uh, of a, um, a transition if you will. Beethoven is kind of our our bridge. He is someone that is, for the most part, considered a uh, classical era composer, and yet he is also the one that set a lot of the standards on what uh, romantic composition would and should be. So um, the romantic period lasts from about 18... 20 till about 1890. So our time periods are, are continuing to get shorter and shorter. We have only a, um, a 70 year period here. Again, you kind of think in today's standards, a, a trend of music lasting 70 years. It's, it yeah. sounds crazy. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, can s- compare that to the, the dark ages where music, literally not even like an inkling change for almost a thousand years. Yeah. So Fairly. when you, when you compare it to that, uh, it's definitely starting to change pretty quickly. And the romantic period is kind of the, the period when like, in my opinion, like music really starts to become music. Like, in the way that we think of it today. Obviously, all this great stuff was done in periods before. We call it music, but there's there's something different. There's something special that happens once you get to the Romantic era. And first off, when we when we say Romantic music, that's not like, uh, like romance. What it means is it is... Um, it is... Uh, artistic it is uh, it is emotional it is if it's romantic that would be the same thing as saying it's dramatic Roman romance being from the term Roman kind of going back to the way things were in the Roman time and it's not just music like all of the art of this period would have been considered romantic art oh and that's okay. that's been this that's been the thing with everything. It's it's not just classical music and baroque music. It's baroque art, classical architecture, um, romantic literature. Like eb- typically, all the art forms during these periods kind of move with each other. So it's not just music kind of doing taking whatever course it wants to take. It's. Um, it's also, you know, the other art forms as well that are moving along with it. And hmm. so, uh, what we what we have in the Romantic period is um, a a increasing need for artistic expression. Let's, if we look back on the classical period, um, 
do you, if you remember what the main source of um, of motivation for artists to create music was because of patronages and from commissions pretty much you had to write music a certain way because you were being required by someone or a group of someone's to make that music you couldn't necessarily just do whatever you wanted there was there was a a certain standard that had to be met hmm okay because it everything determined on the people that were funding you. If the people that were funding you didn't like what you were doing, then they could just cut the ties and you're done. And so I guess we, we get a moving away from that here in the Romantic. Yes. Era. And Beethoven was the start of that. I've, I've said this before in previous episodes, but Beethoven was the first one to really pursue music as a means of self-expression of artistic expression rather than just a job to fulfill now of course doing that job as well as you can but a a unwillingness to move beyond what everybody else was doing before beethoven you didn't have a uh, a unique voice per se that came out in someone's music Usually the way that you could tell the difference between, say, like uh, Mozart and the other classical composers is just simply that his was better. Not because there was an idiosyncratic way that he composed, necessarily, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Like, you could uh, pick one of the very best compositions that another... uh, romantic composer create or classical composer created and put it next to Mozart's and you could convince someone say, yeah, it's a Mozart piece. Mainly because, you know, the thing with Mozart was that he continued to just constantly write top level, but you know, even the moderately great composers, you know, they're going to make one or two great masterpieces. Yeah. Yeah. And so there wasn't necessarily this, you know, oh, that that sounds like nobody but Mozart. It's just that Mozart just happened to be the best at what he did. And that I'm not saying that the cheapened Mozart. It kind of sounds like I'm saying, oh, Mozart was just like anybody else. No, no one could write at the speed that he could and the immense volume and the quality that he could. But he also, and Bach is the same way. Bach was not someone that stood out because he created these stunningly original works. We talked about this quite in depth in his episode that he was just, he was just better at it than everybody. No one, no one could compete with him. And the same thing was with Mozart. Once you get to Beethoven, like if you were to take like symphony number five, which is the it's the one everyone goes to. It doesn't just sound like a romantic piece. Like it doesn't sound like anything except for Beethoven Symphony number no. five. Yeah. That's sure. the only way you can describe it. It's so uniquely him, no one had ever wrote anything that sounds like it before or since. It's just him. Yeah. And 
Um, like before you could, you could have hundreds and hundreds of different classical composers and you can never tell the difference who wrote who. Once you get into the romantic era, you start to have very specific things that apply to different composers. They start to develop a voice in the same way that like in today's music, you will never confuse um, Queen with Iron Maiden. Yeah. Or you're never going to, uh, you're never going to confuse uh Pink Floyd and Metallica. It's just they have they have very unique voices. They write in a very specific way that only they can write. And that's and part of the success of an artist today is finding that thing that you do that nobody else does. Writing music the way that you write music and nobody else. So how would it, how would a romantic composer, like an early romantic composer, be able to pull that off financially? Because now, instead of works being commissioned, now we start to have um, things just being purely written for the box office. Now you start to have this freedom to, um, because not only is, um, is the art changing, but the audience is changing. We have, um, first off, we just straight up have the, uh, the, the toppling of the aristocracy in a lot of these countries. Obviously not as much to where it is today, but this is now a post-America world, a post-revolutionary war. Mm-hmm. This is now the, the day and age where it's, everything is not completely uh, dictated by kings queens and noblemen mm-hmm. now you have a middle class that is that has enough uh enough power enough um enough sway in in the modern uh in the modern say of what is big and what isn't that pure support from from fans is enough to fund an artist's career now wow. of course you're still gonna. It still really helps to have a patron, but it's not the be all end all uh, factor anymore. So is that was it difficult like it is today to get started? Oh was yeah, this- I mean there was. I don't want to paint it as it's this. You know, it's this one hundred percent change in how everything is done, or that you can really easily compare it to today we still have a, a long way to go before we get to how things are done today but there is a uh, there is a a distinct change that is happening and yes it is you still have to uh you still have to be properly trained and schooled you still have to go through you know a long line of you know you've got to play for a certain amount here and there's still a very intense high quality that is expected and so you better make sure that you are well learned and that you know what you're doing okay so there were still like artists that didn't make artists kind of still existed 
Yes, uh, and there will be till the end of time. It's just it's just right. the way that that machine works. But there is more of a chance now. Mm. There also, is... it got better. It got better yes. for the, the starving artist. Yes. I mean, again, I would say it's still way worse than it is today. But again, yeah. just it's it's all relative. Compare it to the classical period and not to how it is today. Right, right, right. Um, okay. It's, you know, we if we were to just compare, oh, let's go today and without having done any of the, uh, you know, journey that we've just done, we go straight back to the romantic period. You'd be like, oh, this is horrible. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, we, the part of the experience of, of these episodes is to kind of put ourselves as if we are moving forward through time and not looking backwards in a sense to look at something that's old if that makes mm. sense mm -hmm. so it is new and exciting music yes <laughs> so i guess you get because of that you start to get music for the musician instead of music for the listener like the the yes self-expression but almost from a sense like you have to get the music out of you mm -hmm. and they told me honestly Beethoven honestly did not care if people liked his music or not. He didn't write for them. He wrote for two people. He wrote first for himself, and he wrote for um, posterity, which means that he wrote with the sense of, even if they don't get it now, I'm so convinced that what I've done is incredible that they'll look back on this years later and say, wow, this was incredible. It takes a lot of arrogance to think that way, but in his instance, he was right but he, was, he was dead on yeah he did have the uh the benefit of people loving what he was doing during his lifetime but that's yeah. not what he was depending on mozart very much depended on that he part of the reason why he was so good at lyrical like catchy writing is because he knew that that's what people wanted and he fed them that mm-hmm Gotcha. And, and uh, Beethoven was not really uh, concerned with that as much. So that really, that really is the modern musician philosophy. Mm -hmm. And there's just there's a continued um, focus on breaking the rules. Oh. When we start to when we really get into the Romantic period, it starts to become almost pointless to talk about things like sonata form and. Uh, even the even the whole concept of what a symphony is and isn't starts to become a little bit as we're going to talk about tonight with uh, the symphony fantastique. Um, by all definitions, this is not a symphony, but yet it is, and hmm. uh, it's a it's a it's a fascinating period. Um, what we're going to see in We'll, we'll just briefly kind of run through what are some romantic era uh, things to look for in all the music that we're going to look at. So um, one of the first things that you're going to want to pay attention to is the emotional expressive content. Classical music was definitely expressive emotionally. I mean, you know, it's it was really good at those, those rises and falls. And yet at the same time, 
usually it was fairly predictable and there weren't these out of left field uh, changes. If it was going to take you on an emotional journey, it usually did so in a somewhat predictable way. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be like really happy and then all of a sudden without any warning just turn incredibly fast, heavy, and dark. That's kind of the Baroque way of doing things as well. Very, Very calculated. Yes, it's we went from Baroque period pretty much like saying that if you start in one emotion, you have to stay there the entire time. To the classical period, we're saying you don't have to stay there, but there has to be a logical path to it. To the romantic period that says, heck, you can take it wherever you think it has to go. Nice. Doesn't, nice. doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. The, the zeroth wave of Prague. As long as it works. And what we'll see, our next period after next year when yeah, we some get of it to, won't. <laughs> yeah when we get to an impressionism that's when it's it's like you can go there even if it doesn't work who the heck cares if something is cohesive or not the, it the, kind of gets uh, up its butt in that way yeah this is when you getting... start yeah avant-garde and atonality and it's it's when things get weird but at the same time there is some very interesting things to pull from it right um there is there is good post romantic uh concert music but you kind of got to know where to look yeah and so um but the main the main thing with romantic music is that it has to work but you can get as creative and as unexpected with it as you want to there's no rules as long as you make it work and as long as you satisfy yourself creatively. That's really one of the main focuses. It's, it's now true, probably truly for the first time, music ascending to the level of pure art form. Uh, boy, isn't that nice. Doesn't that just sound really great? Right. Well, and then and then you can you can take those risks mm-hmm. and do the crazy rule breaking things because it's like you're not trying to be like everybody else. You're trying to do what you want to do. Yeah. And I guess it would take it would take a while to evolve to where we are now, obviously, because you work with what you have and you work with the musical context that you have. And we just came out of the classical period. So everything's going to be instrumentally similar. And for the most part, you know, building blocks off of that mm-hmm. so it's not like we're going to hear electric guitar here so we're not going to get that crazy yeah we're not and gonna, I mean, yeah there's there's still to a certain extent going to be a lot of you know still some forms and you know this is it's in this form so it's going to follow these rules somewhat but like you don't it's not you're not a slave to it anymore to where like you cannot diverge from this or else the music is ruined. And patrons still paid for stuff like that. Yes, the ones that were um that enjoyed that kind of thing. People that were like uh you know, I'm on the cutting edge like cuz there there were patrons that kind of viewed themselves more as appreciative of the arts. 
And then there were some that weren't. But because now the popular uh, demand for this kind of music was increasing, it it helped bridge the gap. So that's that's interesting that the popular demand would be for crazy things because that's not the way that it had been you know in the previous era nor nor in today i mean we don't pop music is not the most complicated music and classical music was very simple Mm -hmm. so was that i mean mean, no i mean classical music really wasn't that simple though well like face value yeah, but at the same time, like, oh, like, cool melody, you know. Yeah, but it still required a pretty hefty um, investment emotionally and mentally. I especially mean, if you're going to go to, especially if you're going to go to opera, and you know, I I think that in a lot of ways, emotionally and artistically, people were a lot smarter back then than they are now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, but it's not it's not quite to the level that it is for this episode. No. Is what I'm getting at. Yeah. By the way, I'll I'll just go ahead and spoil that this was considered a smash success at the time that it came out. Ooh. So like people people got this. They understood it. They were like, wow, something incredible is happening. This was not a oh, it became real famous later when he died type thing. Um, but before, before I get too distracted and start really jumping into this, there's a couple other key things I wanted to talk about. Um, one of the other big changing aspects of the romantic period is the rise of nationalism in music. So if you remember in our previous eras, there were usually hubs where like, if you wanted to become a great musician you had to go to these different places in order to to learn how to write great music right yeah like you typically in the classical period you couldn't tell the difference between someone who wrote that was from uh norway as you could from france or i mean i'm sure if you really took a microscope you could discern a little bit difference but the whole point to a lot of that was that you didn't have these uh these nationalities blending in you wanted to sound like whatever the hub is that you were at like in classical music for the most part that hub was vienna and so there was a viennese style that if you came to learn music there you kind of left at the door whatever nationality or country you were from, and you go and learn that way of composing and writing. Uh, now, okay, now it's like you want to write in the Austrian or Norwegian or French way. Yes. Now your country starts to become a very important part compositionally to your music. Hmm. That like makes- in, in what way, like, how would that manifest? Um, so, like, say every country has a traditional uh, folk music yeah. that it has. And because of that, like, they usually have different modes that they prefer. Like, you know, there there's a reason why certain modes have, like, a an Egyptian or Middle Eastern feel to it. 
or sure. certain things sound very um, Nordic or something to where it's just like that sounds very Celtic. Uh, you can you can hear songs and even before you know where it's from, you're just like, I feel like I know what area of the country this is coming from. Yeah. Even without getting into the really weird modal stuff of like Indian music and Oriental and where it's way different than what we do. But like you can even pinpoint what parts of Europe, you know, modern music comes from just based on the way that it sounds. If something is just like that sounds very exotic. That was not a thing. Like everyone's like you use the 12 note scale. You're mostly going to do stuff in either major or minor. And there's not going to be this uh, this regional sound to whatever you're making. Again, you know, there's going to be always little flukes here and there, but it was definitely not at all any kind of majority. I would say like maybe one or two percent of classical music is going to have any of that sound to it. But once you get to the romantic period, all of a sudden... Now it becomes very important to say, no, I'm Hungarian, so my music is going to sound Hungarian. I am, uh, I am Polish. My, my music is going to sound Polish. I'm Russian. My music's going to sound Russian. So is, like, this where, is this where we get all of the national anthems? Um, maybe, depending. I, I don't know how old a lot of these national anthems are, <laughs> but it's it's quite possible. We're going to be in this era for a year, so it's likely I'll come across the answer to that. I think I think our national anthem at least fits in that in that region of time. I don't know. I have yeah. to look it up. Again, this is how this is a an a when I say post-American, I mean like post-America becoming a nation. This is within the lifetime of our country. And so that kind of puts it in perspective. It's like we're – it's not that far away when you really think about it. Hmm. Like we're, we're – by the time we get to the end of this period, we're going to be knocking on the door of the 1900s. Yeah, and that's kind of – man, 20th century, that's – blink of an eye away from where we are now. Yeah, we're not even 200 years old on some of this stuff. Golly. <laughs> that is weird. Oh, how far we've come. Yeah. So, you know, it's, again, just to put a lot of things in perspective. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, that's that starts becoming, I mean, a big part of that is the... Uh, uh, the urbanization of the world. This is this is during the Industrial Revolution, and um, you know cities are being linked together in ways that they never had been before. Uh, modes of transportation are becoming easier and faster. Communication with different parts of the world is becoming easier and faster. Back in the day, everything was so isolated. You know, if you weren't in one of the, these big hub cities, then you were pretty much like in no man's land oh good point and now everything is starting to link together it's really the beginning of modern europe where you know these these a lot of these country borders are starting to uh really be solidified you have uh you know 
governments that are closer to what they are today being put in place. I mean, we've got France that is no longer a monarchy. We've got, um, you know, it's no longer these dynastic rules that are completely in control of everything. Everything is starting to link so much together. And so now because of that, you don't have to go to all these big cities to make a name for yourself. It's becoming easier and easier to be in your own place and get your music out there. Wow. And that and that continues to today. Yeah, it's it's it almost sounds internet. Yeah. That Again, to compare it to today, it's it's still dinosaur, but to compare where we have been, it's it's gosh dang revolutionary. Yeah, it sounds like it. Man, I was I was watching like a, one of those like historical how did it happen or wherever the myth came from thing on the Pied Piper and talking about Hamburg, Germany back in, I mean, it was post-Renaissance and talking about how it's like, oh, we don't know the, um, or like the people of Hamburg, Germany didn't know the um, like towns that surrounded them. Mm -hmm. Like there was just forest between each city and it was dense forest. Like you just couldn't get from place to place. There was no need to. And so no one did. But I mean, obviously, you have a larger population, you have, right, you have the Industrial Revolution. So you have the need to get goods and services and whatever it is between place to place. And part of that is is communication of art. It's like, it's like the Romans. Oh, my gosh. Romantic Romans. Look at this. Romans built roads for their armies, and then people used it to to transmit ideas. And I'm sure music as well. That was so philosophical of you. That was not very philosophical. I was just ranting. <laughs> I was just thinking out loud. You, I know. You, you've, I'm kind of just ribbing you. You've been uh, you've been informing our listeners. I had to put a roadblock in the in the way. I appreciate it. <laughs> um. Yeah. So those those are the things that we're going to be now looking at. So just I'm not going to tell you exactly what we're going to be looking at this year, but I want to explain why it's going to take a year to get through this period because of the fact now that one, we have this more intense need to express oneself musically and be less concerned with adhering to specific musical rules. And two, this ever widening world of music from other nations putting their own stamp of their own country on it, we start to have a very wide pool of music being made where it is incredibly diverse. So many different uh, things going on musically that there, we have to look at lots of different examples of just what the heck was going on. What, what kind of music was being made Everything that is being made sounds completely different than what uh, the other person is making. So it's almost like we're getting genres. Yeah, pretty wow. much. Again, it's not going to it's it's going to be less concerned now with, you know, these musical forms and rather getting more into like people are writing the same style of music. I'm putting my air quotations up, but 
there's a lot more diversity within that sound. It's mm. quite it's quite exciting. You know what I'm excited about? The Fantastic Symphony. Ah, <laughs> yes. What a what an arrogant name. And yes. I was just about to say that, yeah. Well, written written by a very arrogant man. So let's oh. talk about uh Hector Berlioz. So now our uh, our 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 little thing we're going to start off with is um what country do you think that he was from? Um that is a great question. I'm feeling like southern Europe region, southwestern, Iberian, maybe Italian. He is French. Okay, so okay. Our 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 only close. our only Frenchman that we'll be looking at in the Romantic period. It's okay. it's it's very interesting because uh, France really kind of disappears as uh, as we get further and further into the stream of time as far as being super relevant musically. Now, hmm. not to offend any of our French listeners, saying that your music is not as good, but it it is pretty obvious that. Um, that just the the number of iconic French composers and musicians has little, although you could say that with Phoenix and and Daft Punk and that they're making a comeback. Definitely they're bigger than they used to be. But um, I mean, you go back to when we were in the uh, the Dark Ages and in the uh, the Renaissance, like they were one of the places to be. Like France was considered, like oh, if you go to the to the music school in France, like you're going to be among the best. Weird to think about. I know. And so, but man, Berlioz, he is just for this symphony alone, he is considered one of the greats. Wow. Is that is that a picture of him? No. On... Okay. No, that's the guy that that conducted this particular recording. Okay. It looked black and white, and I was thinking, ooh, what if it's a redone mm. picture? But no. Alas. So Berlioz, he's quite an interesting guy. He was so uh, he was so sure of his own greatness that, like, he not only was he a composer, but he was just a great, like, just all around writer. He wrote his he wrote his own memoir. Mm-hmm. And uh, like when he wrote about his birth, he said, um, "I'm I'm sure that my mother did not know, like Virgil's mother, that she bore greatness within her, or that she uh, that she was carrying someone with the same amount of intensity and fire as Alexander the Great." Boy, he sounds like a real ray of sunshine. Oh yeah. Uh, he's very much like Beethoven in that way. Uh, Beethoven was incredibly uh, taken up in his own magnificence. But again, he could get away with it because he was Beethoven and he was right. Yeah. And Berlioz, to a certain extent, was as well. I mean, here we uh, are talking sim- about him. The Symphony Fantastique is is pretty unanimously decided as the greatest post-Beethoven symphony of all time. Post Beethoven, so we're already well within the Romantic era in this episode. No, 
I would this is the Symphony Fantastique came out about five years after Beethoven's death. So which what year? is not too uh I, I believe eighteen twenty five, eighteen twenty six. Oh. So one thing I will say is that during the in the romantic period, we are gonna be moving somewhat chronologically through it. We're not gonna be just jumping around to whatever part of it that we want. There is going to be a a sense of moving forward still. Historically, Beethoven only experienced a few years of the era that he helped to create. Yeah, again, these date times are, they're not like set in stone. Mm -hmm. I've I've talked about this in other episodes as well. It's, you don't want to be, get too caught up in this is the year that it starts because the people that were living in that time period, they didn't, they weren't aware of like, okay, guys, it's the first year of the romantic period. <laughs> yeah. Time to do some new things. You know, they just, they just were the year changed. They're like, all right, it's another year. Let's, let's do some stuff. It's, these are things that, um, that historians have appended after the fact, seeing that, you know, these were the years kind of when, you know, it was it was pushed enough one way or in, or in this particular way to say, OK, you know, after 1820, like there's pretty much no vestige of classical left. So we have to be romantic kind of by definition. Yeah, it's it's more romantic than it is classical at this point. So we're going to say that this is the beginning of it. So I guess people really didn't know. It was kind of a gradual change. It wasn't one of those. It was much more of a gradual change than the other eras. At least with the other eras, there kind of was a bit more of like a, all of a sudden, this movement rises up and goes, okay, now this is what's going on. Mm. There usually was always some aspect of it being organic, but this is definitely the most organic of all of them. Again, before we never really had a transitional figure like Beethoven. There wasn't someone that led us from the Baroque to the classical. It was just like box dead. And now we're classical Mm -hmm. with um, Beethoven. It was like, he was classical, but also at the same time, he was breaking all the rules that classical people were using. And it's just like, wait, hold on. What's, what's happening here? Yeah. It was a it was a it was a singular artist rather than like a group of people that were intent on doing things differently. And so because of that and because of the fact that he still held on to a lot of classical traits in his music, it he's a big reason why that line is very blurred. Because oh, even in his later works, it's very romantic but it's also very classical as well. Well, it it's makes not sense. often. Really yeah, you're not going to find often these these composers that sit in two different eras as far as like their work is concerned. So, this this is definitely like kind of when Beethoven is gone, Berlioz and the Symphony Fantastique would be an example of something that came right on the heels of that. This is the next logical step from what Beethoven was doing. This is, I would say that this is probably 
as good of a place as any to kind of say, okay, here is the first like great romantic, purely romantic piece that does not have any connections to the classical past. Man, so we're really not going to talk about Beethoven at all. No, we're, I mean, we have talked about him. We talked about him in a couple of our classical episodes, and we did a whole standalone episode about him. Oh, that's true. It's true. I forgot about that. So combining all of that, I, there's <laughs> there's always going to be more to say, but not for what we need to do here. Mm-hmm. I feel like as far as showing us where we are in the history of music, we, we know where we are without having to continue to include Beethoven. So we're, we're fully stepped in. So uh, Berlioz, back, back to him. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, what, what is unique about him, and again, this is kind of where the, where the freedom of the romantic period comes in, is that he was not a child prodigy. That was usually the case with a lot of these composers, you know, none, none really as much in the sense like with Mozart, but even, you know, a lot of like Beethoven starting at age nine or 10 really get into music. Um, you know, most of these composers, like from an early age, showed a, a tendency and a gift for music. Berlioz did not. He was... He didn't play his entire childhood. He had an appreciation for it, but he never took music lessons outside of, you know, probably whatever was required for school. Hmm. And he was supposed to become a doctor like his father. And so he went off to medical school and was so disgusted by the idea of autopsies and, uh, you know, just like the... The, the grossness that comes with being a doctor, having to see lots of mangled body parts and and diseased bodies. He was just like, no, no, I'm yeeting out of here. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so um, it was at that point that he was just like, why don't I try music? And so with like very little musical experience, decided I'm just going to I'm going to go enroll in music school. And somehow convinced his father that it was a good idea. But his father pretty much had the expectation. was just like, yeah, he'll go spend a year or two, find out that this is a bad idea, and then he'll go be a doctor like we expected to. But when he got there, he found that he was incredibly passionate about it and that he did have a gift for it. He just never indulged in it before. And so... He was never really an instrumentalist. And that's a very rare thing for a famous composer and conductor. Because the style for a lot of composers was that they were keyboardists most of the time. And that the way that you compose, like, say, an orchestra for a symphony, you write out all the parts in piano first. Because that's what you usually have with you. And you then transpose it and alter it to fit all the different instruments that you need. Because, you know, if you think about it, like Mozart, when he's at his home, he doesn't have one of every instrument that he goes and and fiddles with and composes. Mm -hmm. He's going to test everything out on the piano, but in his mind, he hears what it is going to sound like on that instrument. But 
at the same time, there's always that aspect of piano to it that is going to always permeate most composers' um, writing style. Not so with Berlioz. He purely uh, composed for the orchestra. In fact, you could say that his instrument was the orchestra. Ooh. And he, better than most other composers, knew how to get every single inch of value out of his entire orchestra. Because... Well, you're, not, you're not biased to any sort of writing style. He, he composed for it first rather than some other instrument. Ah, yes. And yes. so in his mind, he's already automatically thinking, how can I use everything to its fullest extent and not, you know, favor certain aspects or do things in any kind of traditional way? And so that must have been his, his little, his, his sound, his voice. Yeah, as well as the fact that he used freaking huge orchestras. Like what like what thousand piece orchestras. Were they ever played with one thousand pieces? Yep. Oh boy. Is would, this one of them? Yes. He would literally pull like an entire city's worth of musicians. To play is, one of his pieces. Is the recording we are listening to have 1,000 instrumentalists? I couldn't tell you the answer to that. Oh. Because if you're going to have 1,000 pieces, it means you're going to have lots and lots of duplicates of the same. It's not going to be 1,000 unique instruments. Right. But you still get that huge sound. Yeah. I would say probably no one but Beethoven was as huge sounding as Berlioz was. Wow. And he, yeah, he just, he understood the power and the breadth of an orchestra. Yeah, apparently when you're getting a thousand people to to do your uh, symphony, mm -hmm. play your symphony. So the so, symphony, go yeah, ahead, go what were you going to say? You're, you're actually going to go with, my, with what I was going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, so the Symphony Fantastique is his first symphony. First one he ever wrote. Oh. Oh. And it is considered by in any time period, without a doubt, the greatest first symphony, like anyone's symphony number one. Oh, man. So, but this isn't his first written piece. No, but I mean, okay. the sim, the sim, this was still fairly early into his career. Like, I think he was only like 26 or 27. If you consider that he didn't really start composing until he was like 22. Oh my! Twenty-three, um, and probably started writing this when he was like twenty-five. Probably Man, wrote it over the span of a year or so. Natural talent, right there. Yeah, I mean, talk about getting it right the first time. Yeah, and not to say that his other compositions were not great; they are. But there was, there was, there's always has been and will be something special about the Symphony Fantastique. It's, I mean, just, again, like even Mozart and Beethoven and all the greats, none of their symphony number ones are as good as this one. This is the, this is the work of a fully mature and 
capable composer. But it was it was a lightning in the bottle. It really was. So now let's start talking about the the symphony in of itself. This is an example of what would be called uh, a program symphony. Program symphony means that it tells a story. Okay. So this is like the equivalent of a concept record. Okay. An instrumental opera, if you would. I am... You are fantastic peaking my interest <laughs> that was really that was really bad but it that just, was really good to... what are you talking about <laughs> okay uh okay. so yeah the the idea of program music had been around for a little while um beethoven really liked it uh i believe the third movement of the symphony number no. six is often called the uh the 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 storm as the third movement very much um, creates the painting in your mind of a wild storm. Mm, like you've got okay. you've got you've got strings that sound like rain, raindrops. You've got the brass that sounds like deep thunder, and you know the the whole idea of the music and the way that the music is inherently written is to fit the theme. So it's like for program music to work, the theme has to come first, and then you write the music to go to the theme. Or so in some way, it like... could also go to uh, full-out literature. It's not like sound effects, though. I mean, not in not in a kitschy way. To where okay. it's it it's it's corny and beats you over the head with it. Okay. It's one of those things to where if you don't know that that's what you're supposed to be listening to, you might not pick up on it. Okay. And so okay. usually when people make program music, they'll include for anyone that goes to the performance program notes. So that way you know ahead of time this is what this movement's going to mean. This is what this movement's going to sound like. Giving you the context for it ahead of time so that way when it starts, you know what to listen for. Okay. Okay. And I guess this is when you give us the program notes. And I will. <laughs> or maybe, well, maybe that's what the next section is for. That, that'll be the next section. That's, yeah. that's, that's pretty interesting because I listened to this a lot in preparation for this episode I told, and I told you that, that I listened to this a lot in preparation like all day today I was just listening to this over and over and over again, it's great it's great music, I don't understand it right, but but maybe maybe with the added uh, added context that we'll get in the next segment it'll start to make sense oh it will, um, whenever, whenever I learned it it literally, the entire music changed okay I like I was that. listening to it before, and I was just like, you know, that's pretty good. Then I found out the meaning to it, and I listened, and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is a masterpiece. Oh, see, this is this is exactly the type of music that I love. Mm-hmm. This is what this is what I love about our prog episodes. Yeah, this is this is going to be an Octavarium type of episode. Ah, 
Okay, this is exciting. This is exciting. All right. Um, now, the hilarious thing about this is that when it was debuted, Berlioz did not conduct. Do you know where he was? Audience. He was playing the kettle drums. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> he actually did not um, uh, conduct most of his performances. And the kettle drum is usually always the place that he went to. Huh. It's a it's really weird. But why but is that? I don't know. Maybe he just didn't like the uh maybe he had some stage fright. Maybe because I mean I I would assume in an orchestra the kettle drums is kind of an obscured part of the of the setup. Well he can write it to be if he needs to. <laughs> he, is, he is writing his own part. Yeah. Uh, I just I think that of all instruments, that's just a hilarious place. Like he's not even picking one where he's going to be like a star. Um, like you know, he's not like I'm going to sit first violinist, or I'm going to be at the piano, or I'm going to be in the horn section providing that big you know bellowing sound. I'm going to be at the kettle drums. Pardon me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, if you if you truly believe you wrote a masterpiece and you also don't think you're that good of an instrumentalist, then it stands to reason, right? Maybe it's all he could pull. Maybe. You don't want to hurt your one talent by your lack of another. Yeah. Now, I am going to I am going to give an overview of what it is, but then we'll get into details when we get into the songs. Okay. So there's five. That in of itself already is a sign that we're in the Romantic period because symphonies are not supposed to have five movements. They're supposed to have yeah. four. And he was just like, no, the story's incomplete without a fifth movement. So I'm going to write a fifth movement. And you can deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Also, there's there's technically forms to the movements, but if you try and follow them, you're going to get lost. Three of the five have no form to them whatsoever. Okay. Two of them are technically in sonata form, but literally that's pretty much just in title. There are it's more like they're sonata-esque. I guess like those they, are the two shortest ones. No, it's it's movement one well, one of them is movement one, which is one of the longest ones, if not the longest yeah. one. And movement four. But they, oh. a lot of the elements that are supposed to be in Sonata are not there. There's no um, modulating bridge. There's no exposition. It's just more of like the idea of you have a main theme, then you come back to it. And, but again, it's more of like he's taking the aspects of Sonata form that he likes and putting them in because it fits well musically rather than because that's the rule of what you do with sonata form. It's kind of like it's kind of like if you're writing your death metal song and you're like I really want to add some K-pop influences to it but I'm not going to use any rules that usually come with K-pop. I know that's a really weird example but that was I'm really struggling Man, if some if someone writes a death metal song with K-pop like influences, 
That will be the day. And it's good. And it's good. Obviously. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, yeah. But you know what I mean? Yeah, it's just... <laughs> it's, yeah. it's It has elements of sonata form, but it's not a true sonata form. So, already in all of those things, and the fact that the... Ent- Usually people didn't write entire symphonies of program. Usually it would be like a movement would have a program element to it. This okay. this was the first time, at least of a major production, that the entire thing was one cohesive story. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about the story. It's, okay. it's semi- and I'm going to use the word semi, semi-autobiographical. Okay. Because there was a, there was a special woman in Berlioz's life. Um, a stage actress by the name of Henrietta. Berlioz had a very intense fondness for Shakespeare. It was one of his primary loves, along with Beethoven and with uh, himself. <laughs> And he was so taken by her performance as Ophelia in Hamlet that he, like, decided right there and then that he was going to marry her and was, like, sick in love with her, writing her love letters, like, days afterwards saying that he could not sleep, could not eat until he had her. That's that's very over the top, but... Yeah. yeah. He was a very over... He was definitely a man that lived by his emotions rather than his than his intellect. Um, there's a reason why he didn't want to be a doctor and he wanted to be an artist. Worked out. It sure did. Uh, but he actually ended up getting her and they got Ah, good for them. And then she uh, got too old to where they wouldn't let her act anymore and she became an alcoholic. Oh. And left him. So. Oh. But that's not part of the Oh. The whole part of the story and the majority of when he wrote the mystique was during, because it took him two years after he saw her on stage before they got married. Mm-hmm. And so, and it was about during those two years that he took to So, really, this is all about his love and affection for her. And the whole point of it is that you've got five movements. The first movement is about the initial love. And the whole movement is structured around these up and down emotions of, you know, I love her, but I don't know what to say to her. I'm terrified of her, but I need her. Does she love me? Oh, she probably doesn't love me back. It's this war of emotions. Mm-hmm. The second movement is him going to a dance to try and forget about her because he know he has made up in his mind he he's not good enough to have her and so he tries to forget about her but he can't she constantly keeps coming up in his mind no matter what he does to distract himself she persists in his imagination okay then in the third movement he goes out to a quiet field and um this is kind of when the the ultimate decision is made the does she love me like a you know she loves me she loves me not at the end he decides she loves me not and that he will never have her movement oh. four is when it gets wacky and this is i'm not um 
assuming or taking any liberties here. This is in the program notes. He gets uh, tripped up on opium and has a bad acid trip. Okay. And has a nightmare. We're getting real tool here now. Yes, he has a nightmare that he has killed her and that he is being taken to the gallows to be executed. Oh. Okay. But then it gets crazier. Um, I didn't know if you noticed in Movement 5, it's borderline metal. Yeah, it's got the death knell. And it's because that he is dreaming of a satanic ritual where he is being uh, taken down to hell after being executed. And wouldn't you know it, the the person leading this satanic orgy is the woman that he was obsessed with. And that she's pretty much like condemning him to eternal damnation. Oh, okay. Wow. That, okay. See, this was, this is more of a catch 33 moment than Octavarium moment of just like, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) Like I was, I'm giving a very brief synopsis here. We'll get into detail what happens when we get into the yeah, songs. Okay. <laughs> Cause like I hear the bell, I'm thinking like, oh, it's a call. And then you're like, oh, it's like metal. I'm like, ooh, it's a death knell. I it is. Thought... It's it's meant to signal his his uh funeral. When you said it was like about a, a woman that he loved, I was thinking of the bell. I'm like, ah, oh, because like they're getting married at a church, and then it's oh. Oh no. 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 It's about no. it's about the worst possible thing you can think of. Oh poor guy. But not for real because it's it's a it's a story. Don't worry guys. Mm-hmm. No no bad dreams here on the good music podcast. Only other people's bad dreams that they write about and make good music too. Yeah. <laughs> but once you once you kind of observe the finer details of what's going on, man, the music does an incredible job of telling this story. And when you get to the end to end of it, you like there's no happy ending. Like there's no like moment of oh I woke up it was all a bad dream thank God. Mm-hmm. It's it's. You could maybe say that he has uh that he is overdosed and is dead. And perhaps the fifth movement is like not what's happening in a drug-filled nightmare, but maybe what is actually happening. Oh, geez. Oh, boy. Yeah, that 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 took a second to hit my psyche. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Because it is dark and it is heavy. We've well. We're definitely in a different era than a little bit of night music, guys. Uh-huh. Really different feel than haha funny string quartet. Oh yeah. my. This is this is intense. Like I I am very confident in saying first heavy metal moment in music history. Yeah, I mean going to hell after a drug overdose. Yeah, uh, the 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 literal name of the movement is um dream of a witch's sabbath oh yeah okay okay you use the word sabbath it's basically metal 
Just like witches at black masses. Uh, although there's there's not there's not the hidden political undertones. So I don't know if you could really call it metal. Uh. Oh, metal is not just political. <laughs> You know that. I do know that. I do know that. I do know that. But some of the best metal, some of the best metal, I'm just saying. Well. But at the same time, also some of the best metal has has the weird concept albums and stuff. Mm -hmm. And here we are with our 55 minutes of concept, or I guess program music, basically concept album. Pure concept. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't ha- you don't have James Labrie to uh, vocalize over it to make it sound a little bit less than epic. As much as I love, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It is epic. Plenty. I love. I love James Labrie, but also, I just I am ready to have this music. Yes, I think it's time a new way. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about. The five movements of the symphony fantastique. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast, of course, where we talk about good music and fantastic symphonies like the Symphony Fantastique by Hector Berlioz, great French composer. We just spent a long time talking about the romantic music and the different intricacies or idiosyncrasies or whatever weird pronunciation you can slip up on that is synonymous. Now it's time to talk about the Symphony Fantastique. The music itself. Actually, listen to the songs. You know, we highly recommend you guys listen to the music. This is the Good Music Podcast, after all. And if you do want to listen to the songs, down in the description of every single episode, there is a link to a Spotify playlist which has all of the songs from every single episode, past, present, and future. These songs are on there. On your way, scrolling down to the bottom of the list where they are. If you see other songs that you're interested in by other artists that you're interested in, we have an episode on that where we talk about that song. So be sure to check that out if you're at all interested. And without any further ado or plugging or shameless self-promotion, let's start with our first movement. So this must be the, uh, the introduction to the woman, I guess. Yes. So this first movement is entitled uh, Daydreams and Passions. Oh, so okay. It's, it starts off in a pretty uh, dark and somber note. Kind of almost like uh, kind of like the way that we enter the story is a man that is depressed, that is alone, that, that sees no life and love. You know, it's like you've got that, you've got that, that very, um, dramatic like the da, 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 
It's like it's like kind of like it's a very oh I'm so sad. Oh, 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 oh nobody loves me. Oh, 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 oh. I will say your commentary is actually fitting the the music quite well. Are you listening to it again right I am, now? I am listening to it. Well, it's I always do that. Yeah, you get the, you get the best I, experience that way. I forget sometimes that you do that. <laughs> So, yeah, it's just, it starts off this very low, it's very quiet, it's very, um, it's very introspective, kind of just, you know, it's, it's a, we're, we're starting off with a character that is in a very low emotional state. Mm -hmm. And you can feel the music dramatically change when she comes in. Let me read the program notes real quick. So for moving one. The author imagines a young musician afflicted by the sickness of spirit, which a famous writer has called the vagueness or confusion of passions. Sees for the first time a woman who unites all the charms of the ideal person his imagination was dreaming of and falls desperately in love with her. By a strange anomaly, the beloved image never presents itself to the artist's mind without being associated with a musical idea in which he recognizes a certain quality of passion, but endowed with nobility of shyness, which he credits to the object of his love. This melodic image and its model keep haunting him ceaselessly like a double ide fi. This explains the constant recurrence in all the movements of the symphony of the melody, which launches the first allegro. The transitions from this state of dreamy melancholy interrupted by occasional upsurges of aimless joy to delirious passion with its outbursts of fury and jealousy, its returns of tenderness, its tears, its religious consolations. All this forms the subject of the first movement. So this is from Hector Berlioz's own perspective. This is not a critic or a reviewer posting and putting all this on after the fact. Wow. So, so it really is part of the. This is this the is quote unquote lyrics, so to speak. Yes, this is this is what he intended the music to be all along. So you don't have to be like, well, you're kind of reading too much into that. I, I don't quite like this. Is this is what he intended it to be? Yeah, and and that's that's very true. Like as soon as that first real fast, you know, I mean, that's like. That's so let's, so let's talk about this sudden. this musical idea. It's it's formally called the Ide Fi, mm-hmm. which just is French for central idea. Um, this is going to be the musical theme that ties the entire symphony together. It's what allows him to go in lots of different directions and yet for it to feel like one strong cohesive unit. It's very prog. Yeah. Um, and that's the, it's this very, it comes at about like the five minute 30 mark. And it's the, and it's got that little, like that little, ascending on. Mm-hmm. so that whole theme, that's, that is the theme that represents, uh, that represents the woman the one that is the subject of his obsession and love man that is that is such a good theme because you can really twist that to to mean 
a lot of different emotions. If you're going to write something and claim that it is a central theme to a large unifying um, piece, you got to write a really good theme because you got to have something first off that is memorable. If you write a theme that you're not going to, that people aren't going to remember, then, then that just fails outright. Yeah. They're going to forget by the next time it comes around, then it's kind of not going to do its job. (laughs) And yet it also has to be, um, it has to be simple enough to be remembered and yet at the same time have enough quality about it to where it can be manipulated and used and, and messed with. Mm-hmm. It has to, uh, it has to have a certain flexibility to it. Yeah, that's true. Well, it has you, to, and it if, has if to, if you're going to go exploring. Yeah. You're you're gonna need a rope that's gonna follow you through all the caverns. Mm-hmm. So it's it has to accomplish a lot of different things, and so it's you know when you're gonna do something like this, everything really does hinge upon the main theme. Yeah, yeah, and it's a good one. It is. It is. That is true. And so that's the theme that now, as you listen through, keep an eye out for because it will not always in its entirety but it will appear in all five movements and when you and it's the thing that really it really does tie the whole story together it's it's i think it's maybe the most amazing thing about this is the way that the theme works Mm. it i i think it's outstanding and it's brilliant Okay. Okay. So trying to fit things together. This is one of our sonata form sections, or I guess. Yeah. So in what, I guess, remind everybody what sonata form is. Where does this veer from that? What's the, what's the added flavor? So first off, the fact that we, so like a, a sonata will usually always have a main theme. And that's in this instance, it's when that E-Day fee comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, that is pretty much as as far as I know. That's about as all that it takes from the from the sonata form. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like he just put that on there to say, like, yeah, sure, it's sonata, cool, whatever. <laughs> okay. I can honestly, I feel like I would have to have a lot more formal schooling to be able to identify what parts of this particular composition are in sonata form. But just as an overall, um, sonata is usually going to feature three main parts. And there are subparts within that, but the three main parts is that you have your, um, you have your exposition, then you have your... Um, Oh, what's it called? The uh, exploration. the exploration, and then the recapitulation. There's no recapitulation here. It's pretty much all uh, exposition and uh, and exploration. It's the, Develop- it's the development section. That's what I, I I was just like. I know I know the word. It's development section. It's got the hallowed be thy name construction yeah fitting because i am doing an iron maiden puzzle right now yeah that's true that's true 
That is that's pretty metal as well. Because I mean, like, think about how many metal songs are just like, oh, you have the theme and you have like the very melodic sections and whatever, and then you go off into crazy tangents where like it speeds up and you do like these cool riffs, and then it's just like, you know, the audience goes crazy song and like the band gets really into it and whatever. But man, so. If you if you notice at the end he talks about its religious consolation. That part at the very end, when it becomes so peaceful, so tranquil, it almost mm-hmm. becomes very church like. And I think that this is where the French aspect really comes into play. Because mm-hmm. it it has a flavor of old religious French Catholic music to it. Ah, yes. Yeah, oh man, that's a callback. Mm-hmm. That's a callback to some earlier episodes. Wow. Yeah, it kind of does. It's very, it's very, very tranquil. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. It's like its own little epilogue yeah to the first movie mm-hmm. uh, a, a beautiful coda mm-hmm. wow man that's good this is good stuff this is good stuff it's starting to make more sense i it doesn't it doesn't seem like 15 minutes of just exploration <laughs> anymore mm-hmm. to my head wow oh so... man that so, yeah, nice so there major one, major four chord progression. Ooh. Oh yeah, give me that theory. Ooh, well that's that's all it is. That's all it is. It's just first major, fourth major, and major and the Tom. four the four resolves to the one, like just or no, the one resolves to the four, so naturally, and so you can end everything on the major one, and it's like ooh, let's go to the major four, just like throw people off. Let's go back to the major one. It kind of sounds very waltzy. It sounds like you're standing on like maybe your back porch and the sun is setting, or maybe the sun isn't setting. Maybe this, it's just a nice sunny day, and nothing's really happening. You just feel very at peace with everything. That's the actual. Um, they took uh, they. I don't know who they is, so maybe this is completely wrong. But I saw a um, video where these people took uh, audio recording of cicadas and they slowed it way down. And it is the same progression as this. Interesting. Like they actually, cicadas actually sing in, and it's very, very fast, like that that buzzing. You have to slow it way down, but it's the same. It's, there's some music theory. There's some music in, in nature, which is really weird to think about cicadas using the 12-tone scale. But I mean, hey. You know, weirder things have happened. Yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, toilets flush in a particular key, so I can't cicadas. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so true. Yeah. I did not think about that. I did not think about that. All right. Well, on after that tranquil note, after 16 minutes of our first movement, we go to our shortest movement. Yes. This is our second movement. So this is uh, called just simply called a ball. Hmm. Oh, because it's like the dance. 
and this is a very short program. No, it says the artist finds himself in the most diverse situations in life, in the tumult of a festive party, in the peaceful contemplation of the beautiful sights of nature. Yet everywhere, whether in town or in the countryside, the beloved image keeps haunting him and throws his spirit into confusion. Mm. So the first thing you're going to hear is this great dance melody, this this waltz. Ah. Uh. But what's going to happen is that you're going to almost in a way take a trip into his mind because as he's dancing, he's all of a sudden going to hear the Ide Fee. And it's going to momentarily drown out the music. But you can still faintly, and this is what's beautiful about using an orchestra in the right way, is that you can have the instruments playing the dance theme pull way back to the back and have the instruments that are playing the Ide Fee go upwards. And then all of a sudden you have the dance theme come back in and it starts getting faster and faster, almost like there's a desperation of him, like I have to dance her out of my head. He starts getting uh, frantic. Like maybe if I dance faster, maybe if I dance harder, she'll leave me alone. Oh. But, but he can't do it. No matter how much he tries, she will win. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah, when you have a thousand orchestra pieces, you can do that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with with modern techniques, you can just use a fader. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how a, that's how a band would probably do it today. Right, like a band that's like in the studio and and using a you know the normal amount of instruments, but it's uh it's. It's a really amazing take because this is now we've never seen anything like this. That's using the orchestra in such a subtle way to communicate such a deep mental idea. Mm -hmm. Like this is, we're now reaching the point of like film score. Yeah. I was thinking that when I was listening to this, like it sounds so emotional that at, at some points you it belongs in like Star Wars or something. Yeah. Well, just... Star, most great classic film scores, especially the stuff done by like John Williams and all that, that's based off of romantic music primarily. That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, this this stuff is on par with the emotion of stories that we know and love. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So now that you are listening to it, are you hearing that that battle? Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like noise anymore. Mm-mm. Isn't it always great when something doesn't sound like noise anymore? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, well, that's true. But that's how you know we're making great. progress, guys. It's not noise. It's it's also great when it's just you understand why certain creative decisions were made. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, like every creative decision was made for a reason, and so like when you when you figure it out, it's just like ah, oh, this is so good. And then and then you like you understand the overarching theme, the overarching story, and then you like you feel like both sides are richer. That you have you have such an interesting story, well, interesting in multiple ways, and interesting music that on their own are pretty kind of you know they're okay. 
But when you put them together, it's like they both stand out as like something really just unique and very original. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 the prog way of, of making things stand out. That's I mean, the prog way. You, you, listen, you listen to something like The Wall. There are some really weird moments on that album that if there were, you'd be like, what is the point of this song? And the story itself is kind of almost like a bunch of different case studies. All yeah, in it's, one case study. It doesn't work as well as a, a straight narrative. Right. but It's a bit more them, abstract than that. Put them together, you get one of the greatest concepts records of all time one of the greatest records period yeah and i mean i feel like that's what we're getting that's what we're getting here that's the same type of experience this is good stuff wow and it's like 200 years old yeah wow oh boy yeah i'm i'm listening to the uh competing themes right now my goodness it's very, it's very waltzy for sure, and you do have that frantic feeling. So anyway, after six and a half minutes of running away from his feelings, we get a nice long third movement. Yes. So this is a scene in the country. Okay. One evening in the countryside, he hears two shepherds in the distance dialoguing with the Ranzevaches. This pastoral duet, the setting, the gentle rustling of the trees in the wind, some causes for hope that he has recently conceived, all conspire to restore to his heart an unaccustomed feeling of calm and to give his thoughts a happier coloring. He broods on his loneliness. He hopes that soon he will no longer be on his own. But what if she betrayed him? This mingled hope and fear, these ideas of happiness disturbed by dark premonitions, form the subject of the adagio. At the end, one of the shepherds resumes his rans divage. The other one no longer answers. Distant sound of thunder, solitude, silence. And those were his. Those were his words. His words. Verbatim. Verbatim. I'm. I'm not leaving anything out wow wow yeah man knows how to tell a story you bring in you bring in the important side characters Mm -hmm. move the plot forward oh man they're even more they're they're symbolic it's meant to be that at this point the reason it's a duet in the beginning is because there's still in his mind a hope that two will be brought together it's a song of love in a way but then at the end, after his big emotional battle that he goes through, when the song resumes, there is no one there to to accompany. Mm. And man, it's it's a gut wrenching moment when you hear that melody, and it's like you hear this. It's a very dramatic pause. Like he's like he's waiting for his friend to respond back and. There's no one there. Uh, it reminds me of a. Uh, you, did you ever play Undertale? No, but I had some friends who were just obsessed with it. That's well, a great game. But there's a there's a famous thing in the in the game where like you cry for help and and just this this little message pops up that says, "But nobody came." 
and it's just it's like it's this this feeling of like absolute like dread and loneliness and then the fact that you can hear like the timpanis like bellowing deep in the distance like it's it's again it's the music was not written first the idea was put down first and he's using the music to tell the story that again that's that seems so like well duh obviously but when you really think about it it's so powerful yeah no that 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 makes sense to me i mean but, gosh it seems it seems like cuz even you know we talk about scenes from a memory a lot when we talk about um concept records and things and mm-hmm. really well done concept records As but even should. from even from that perspective i mean they had some of the music first i mean they had to because they were building off of metropolis yeah part i mean one. i mean the yeah some of the music was metropolis part one so it's like even then even some of our greatest um you know concept records of today and metal or really that was you know late 90s but still relatively recent a lot of the music still came first rather than the idea. Yeah. Now that's not to say that he probably didn't have some ideas floating around that he was able to um, reconfigure. Mm -hmm. But again, it's not one of those things to where like he wrote the music for this and then thought, I wonder what kind of story this tells. (laughs) Yeah. Because the story and the way that the story needs to go is what dictates what the music needs to do. The music is at the mercy of the concept. And when you write that way, where where you're intentionally strategizing, the music needs to do this to satisfy this this plot point, this story arc. Like, it it completely uh, changes the way you're going to write it. Yeah. No, it does. It stops being a collection of melodies and starts becoming a a uh, really a soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Really let's a talk about story. Let's talk about what happens in the middle of this movement. Because okay. this is because this is the big moment. You've got um you you we talk about how there's a there's a a storm that is brewing, mm-hmm. but at this point of the song the storm is uh starts off as metaphorical. And because you have this moment, and this is where the Ide Fee fits into this third movement. You don't hear the whole thing. You have this, you know, and then like it all of a sudden switches to something super scary and dissonant. And it's this, it's this back and forth. It's the, it's the, she loves me. She loves me not. It's, uh, he's, he has these, brief moments of just like oh it's gonna be okay and then all of a sudden the inner storm overwhelms him but then he tries to think again of no 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 i i I know it'll be fine she loves me she won't do that but what if she does and the 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 thunderclap hits the rain starts pouring down and you know it's this it's this inner storm of emotion that is constantly being pulled back and forth back and forth until finally 
he the the negative emotions take over and you hear like it almost sounds like just uncontrollable weeping as the as all of the strings descend downward oh oh okay oh that's cool okay it's just i to me that was just sounds mm-hmm. to me that was just one of one of many parts to just sounds oh man i'm so glad that you are here to explain things <laughs> <laughs> otherwise i would i would not be getting it man hey i didn't trust me i didn't get it until someone explained it to me yeah well that's how the best stuff is mm-hmm you just have to you have to be gifted with the knowledge of what it truly is yeah so yeah it's man it's just it's so good <laughs> <laughs> oh boy yeah man just it it's not 17 minutes of randomness anymore mm Again, Jeez. it's like with with this kind of music, it's almost like that's what we're trained to think that it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to a certain extent, that's what people back in that day felt. And I bet that the fact that they had this, these program notes and that, you know, with Beethoven kind of already priming and leading the way for people to start listening to music a different way. By the time this came around, it was just like people were hungry for it. They were just like, "Yes, this is what we've been waiting for." Wow. Yeah, I can't imagine. It 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 is it is such a different way of listening, though, because our like our modern way of listening to things that are very. Um, I don't want to use Prague as another example, but just metal in general, there's a lot of um, like instrumental sections. Like, oh, you have some vocals and then like, oh, there's a guitar solo or oh, there's this weird like jam section or whatever that doesn't really have anything to do with the theme of or the story of the song. You could take it out and the story is exactly the same. And so I was totally expecting like there to be a lot of that when you said, oh, the story will be really cool. Like, the content is really cool. I'm like, ah, so it's like some content and then, oh, there's this cool melody I want to stick in there. No. It's just like every, everything's calculated. Everything's, oh, everything yeah. has a place. Man. Okay. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And he's on the kettle drum this whole time. <laughs> I'm, I'm, waiting for, I'm waiting for that kettle drum solo. I'm just, I just keep thinking about that every every like few minutes. I'm just like he's on the kettle drum right now. He's like he's not even at the front of the orchestra. But hey, if you want something done right, pay somebody else to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh boy. So I guess that I guess that brings us all the way to the end of our third movement. Yeah, so now that, so so again, yeah, now that you know the intense uh, emotional drama that's coming when you get to that, uh, when you get to that reprise at the beginning of that little uh, duet, 
man, it's so painful to hear the no reply. Mm. Even though you're not the one that's in, that's going through all of the, the anguish, it's kind of like, just like, dang, I feel it. I understand. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry she's treating you like that. Or maybe she's treating you. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, so now, now we start to get into to, the really dark stuff. Got to do the acid trip. That's how you end any good uh, any good concept record is with drugs. Yep. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna astral project into space. Yeah, and then uh, fly around the sun and get stuck outside of our corporeal existence. Uh huh. Okay, so back to another short movement, and this is another quote unquote sonata, maybe question mark. Yeah, again, it's gonna it's gonna do us no good to try and track what parts of the sonata are happening. So we're just gonna not. Um so this is March to the Scaffold. Here's program notes. Convinced that his love is spurned, the artist poisons himself with opium. The dose of narcotic, while too weak to cause his death, plunges him into a heavy sleep accompanied by the strangest of visions. He dreams that he has killed his beloved, that he is condemned, led to the scaffold, and is witnessing his own execution. The procession advances to the sound of a march that is sometimes somber and wild, and sometimes brilliant and solemn, in which a dull sound of heavy footsteps follows without transition the loudest outbursts. At the end of the march... The first four bars of the Ide Fee reappear like a final thought of love, interrupted by the fatal blow. Ooh. Yeah, there are some pretty, like, sharp fortissimo moments, which just yeah. all of a sudden things are loud. Uh, it's a, uh, it's, it's creates this incredible sense of dread when it starts, and the only thing you hear is, like, the, the drums in the distance. Mm-hmm. and you hear the low bass like it's yeah and it's like that's how an actual funeral march is is you've got the you've got the uh the rhythm instruments come first and then everything else starts to to make its way in like if you are actually there that's how you would hear this it's mm-hmm. it is it is accurate it is it is weird it's, it's almost like there's this triumphant theme somewhere in there like yeah, the, it, it's it not triumphant like... for him, but in the in the mind of the people that are executing him, they're uh, they're happy because they caught a murderer and he's going to justice. Oh, yeah, good point. <laughs> so you know, again, this this is a little bit more from their perspective because again, he's 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 saying he's describing this as if he's watching it himself and not a part of it. Oh, good point. And so, yeah, in their minds, they're like, woohoo, there's a bad guy off the streets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. And so, yeah, it's, um, they're, they're celebrating, but he is, uh, he is not in such a, a good state. Yeah, I can imagine watching yourself get executed. <laughs> yeah. And so, now, is this the part where we branch off of the autobiographical? Yeah, because obviously, obviously, this didn't happen in real life. At least I don't think it did. 
And that's not to say that um, the 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 fact that it's biographical is just that he had these feelings, not that he literally went to a dance to dance away his problems or oh, okay. that he like that's what I mean by the autobiographical is just that the inspiration was from a true romantic situation that he was in. I mean, it is the romantic era. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when we get to the end, yeah, we have that, we have the E-Day fee come in just briefly. And it's one of the most tender versions of the E-Day fee that we hear right before we hear bang. And then you hear like this little bump bump, like you hear his head rolling on the ground. Oh. Oh. Okay. And oh then, my. And that must be the timpanies that did that. Uh-huh. And then, wow. of course, and then, of course, you have this big triumphal thing, but it's, again, it's because the in, in, the, in the audience's mind, the enemy is dead. Yeah. We defeated him. Woo! Mm-hmm. Everyone... It's all good. Mm-hmm. So he's he's watching. You've got to imagine that there's some subtext of of him witnessing a large crowd of people like happy at his own death. Yeah, that what kind of subconscious of, uh... thing is maybe maybe working under the behind the scenes there? Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty grim. That's a bad. That's a bad trip. Mm-hmm. And I will point out that um, this is the uh, this tends to be the most famous uh, part of the symphony, Fantastique. Ooh, I can imagine. I mean that that triumphant dun 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 dun, dun. sounds a bit like Star Trek <laughs> or something. You know, it's it's some it's kind of familiar in a weird way. Mm-hmm. But it's just a little it's a little out of touch. So man, I mean I guess that's the that's the whole point is that like it's it's a dream, it's not really it's not really real. So yeah. it doesn't matter if these if these themes sound tangible, if they're a little bit out of uh, maybe not out of left field, but a little bit out of uh, realism. That's okay. Yeah, but they sound fantastic, fantastique, fantasy-like, or whatever. So, not to Martin Cabello, everything, but <laughs> <laughs> fantastic, fantastique, fantasy-like, fantasy, the sea of Fanta, and then talk about how your brother John accidentally blew up his house with millions of gallons of kerosene. Anyway, we're okay, not that you lost, Martin you lost me there. Oh, I guess okay. We're not that Martin Cabello on this podcast that we just maybe I am. I mean, I am already here. Okay, anyway, <laughs> so we got the we got the fourth movement where we end with him basically dead, watching himself die. Wow. Yeah. So we go into our final movement Mm -hmm. which is like the finally free slash trial slash ultimate penultimate moment where it just stuffs all of the really interesting climax exposition stuff in there yes i'm guessing 
pretty much it's it's the uh I guess you can say that when we get to the end we'll we'll maybe say like what is this what is this really trying to say? Cuz if you if you try and figure out what's the point of this it kind of is a little dark and depressing. Mm-hmm. Um so let me read the program notes to Dream of a Witch's Sabbath. He sees himself at a witch's sabbath in the midst of a hideous gathering of shades sorcerers and monsters of every kind who have come together for his funeral strange sounds groans outbursts of laughter distant shouts which seem to be answered by more shouts the beloved melody appears once more but has now lost its noble and shy character it is now no more than a vulgar dance tune trivial and grotesque it is she who is coming to the sabbath roar of delight at her arrival she joins the diabolical orgy the funeral knell tolls burlesque parody of the dies irae the dance of the witches the dance of the witches combined with the dies irae so something you might not have known we're we actually are going to have a little bit of a revisit to one of our very first music history songs dies irae Remember when we talked about that in our Gregorian chant um, episode? Yes, yes. I, I did recognize that phrase. It's like, where have I heard that before? Huh, okay. Well, there you go. So yeah, that's what that's what starts playing when the, when the bell starts to chime. Mm. When the bell begins Ding. to chime. Yeah. No, like, that sounded so much like a church bell and just like the 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 part of me that well all of me all of me has been to methodist church services but just like remembering because that's that's in like the traditional service they would ring a bell and that's when you stand and then you all sing like out of the hymnal right and so it's like as soon as that hit and of course you have like the wrestling of pages it was just kind of like a like a weird instant jump back in my brain to that like moments like that where everybody's suddenly at attention and it's like okay whatever is about to happen everybody needs to know about it kind of thing yep it's just so weird that he used it in like a like a satanic manner (laughs) but like let's go ahead even still it's like this is the this is the end of the thing it's like if you're gonna pay attention pay attention now yep so you know works so let's let's revisit the words of the DS era. But now, because again, he's he's very much trying to call your attention to this. Imagine the words of this, but now at a uh, satanic ritual. That day is a day of wrath, a day of tribulation and distress, a day of calamity and misery, a day of darkness and obscurity, a day of clouds and whirlwinds, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fence cities and against the high bulwarks bulwarks okay this is this is is a this is about the the final day that is really that's very mm. it's about judgment day that's intense but do you know who it's judgment day for for him Mm. and he ain't receiving judgment from the lord he's receiving judgment from satan himself who is uh, 
a little bit less merciful, so to speak. So, um, and so have you, uh, did you hear where the uh, E-Day fee comes in? Um, is it, is like that horns? It's like the clarinets that sound like horribly out of tune. It's like, like it sounds, it's one of the most horrifying things I've ever heard an instrument do. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. It it comes in pretty soon off the top of the song. I missed it then. Okay, I'll have to listen to it again because, like, I was listening for something else. It's worth going back to because okay. for me, it it literally sent a cold chill down my spine the first time I heard it. When I knew that's what it was, like in my mind, I had this image of like this dark cave that you know that he's in with these witches around, and you just like see a tunnel that's black, and you hear the the sound of that melody, and you just see this figure like like grotesquely like moving and dancing as this tune is playing. Oh, oh you're creeping me out. Oh, you're creeping me it's out. It's nightmare fuel, man. Yeah, it is. Like, oh. it's like you're listening to it. It's just like an instrument should not make that sound. Yeah. It's, oh. it's, I don't know how they were able to so perfectly play that to where it's horrible sounding and yet it's still perfect for the theme. Mm-hmm. And just and then yeah, throw in the fact that that is the main theme that we've been hearing in such a loving, noble way this whole time, and now it has been warped and. Uh, demonized so much that it's almost unrecognizable and it's repulsive. Mm, That is, that is nightmare fuel. Oh my gosh. And those horns do not help. (laughs) No, that is, that's very, that's very John Williams as well. Uh Uh-huh. It it's very much reminds me of uh, in the presence of enemies and like when that when the bell rings and and uh, in the in the symphony fantastique and it reminds me of in presence of enemies when they say it's time for your reckoning. Mm, yeah. Like that whole in presence of enemies part two, that whole first part where he's like essentially in hell about to meet Satan himself, the dark master. Yeah. Those are the kinds of visuals I imagined during this final movement. So yeah, you can imagine like it's uh, as the as the movement uh, comes to the end, you can just imagine like the the dancing getting crazier, the fire burning brighter. You can imagine like everything like just completely uh, uh everything completely just reality melting and bending. Yeah. Until finally he's consumed by the eternal fires of hell. And that's like the big finish. So you can put whatever visual you want to that. And it's probably more intense than you can imagine. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, geez. Wow. Oh, wow. That, you know, that really sucks that... I don't want to say it. I don't want to put it that way. Maybe I will put it that way. I'll just say it. It kind of sucks that there's no lyrics to this because you don't get it just by listening. That it's like people looking for good music today aren't going to, or like a good concept or program music or whatever, aren't going to listen to this and go, wow, what a great and interesting story that the music is telling because that's like we've been spoiled by lyrics. Yeah, we really have. Yeah, so that's that's why I didn't get it. And now it's like, it's horrifying. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was wonder if people have done like remakes or adaptations or like covers in big giant air quotes. I I sure hope so. I sure hope so. That would be that would be very very interesting. That's all trying to say because there's Just no be- happy ending here. There is. This is the whole point of the story is that he wanted to fall in love and in and at the end his falling in love caused him to burn in hell. Yeah, that's a good moral. Yeah, and stay away from... Was the person front and center tormenting him in the end? Oh. Oh. So it's like, don't fall in love, kids. I don't know. Like, does is, is the point being that love only leads to damnation? You in the end, it's not... It's not worth it. It'll it'll uh, destroy your mortal soul. I don't know. I or don't know. Is it all just is it all just pure story? And there's I'm no almost, hidden message underneath it. I'm almost wondering if it is just pure story because if you think but then about again, it, how do you come up? How do you come up with an ending like this? He wrote this while he was still in love with her like desperately in love with this woman, right? Yeah. So he's not going to write a symphony that's like, ah, oh, love is terrible, but, you know, also... Hey, you know. but I mean, like, it's... it's The program notes spell exactly what's happening. So he goes up to her and says, hey, I wrote this symphony for you. You are the leader in a satanic orgy that banishes me to hell. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> None. It doesn't. Interesting about it. You're just like, what compels a man to write this? Yeah, what compels him to write this and then hand it to the woman he wrote it about and say, hey, love you very, very, very much. Let's You're get the married. Peace, by the way. Also, little detail. Just listen to the first movement, by the way. in hell. And you torture me. Maybe, maybe that's maybe that's like, like Star Wars too. Like you're in my very soul, tormenting me. Uh, oh, then, gross! You, know, you like put don't don't put that scene in my over head. Your eyes, and then you're like, ah, oh, you don't understand me, mom. Kind of thing. See, I got the whole vibe of don't look, Mary, and keep your eyes shut. Okay. Well, 
apparently we, we have two different brains, I guess. I guess. That's what that's what makes it interesting. Well, but it's like yeah. Anyway, it's it is interesting. So guys go listen to the music. It'd be it'd be such a shame if you got all the way to the end of this, didn't listen to the songs. We're literally giving you the tools to understand one of the most fantastic symphonies in all music history. Oh yeah. So go uh, go check this out. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts about the Symphony Fantastique and kind of uh, just talk about how we feel about the Romantic period and what we so far like and contrast it with the classical period. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We just got finished talking about Hector Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique and the five movements that go along with it. So if you want to check these songs out, there is a link in the description of the episode. That takes you to our Spotify page, and uh, you can listen to the entire symphony. I would really recommend that you do, even if you normally don't listen to this type of music. I promise you, especially now if you've, listen to the last segment and you've gotten the program notes um you're gonna hear this music differently even if you've heard it before just as it is um i highly recommend you go check it out and now it's time to give our final thoughts so grant what did you think about berlioz the fantastique and our introduction to the romantic period well i'm i'm gonna I'm going to start this off by saying it's not very common that I'm having trouble putting my feelings into words. Like, I'm very rarely speechless when we're talking on the podcast. Usually I'm excited. I'm like, oh, man, you know, listening to this artist's stuff was so good. I had a lot of fun, yada, yada, yada. This is the thing I like. I like this thing. I like one, two, three, ABC, all this stuff. And, like sometimes it'll be really hard to like get me to shut up but this was like this was a whole other deal like i was processing everything like as we were talking about it, it was so hard to just remember like oh hey i have to actually you know contribute some verbiage to what we're what we're discussing i have to put my feelings into words oh my goodness so that's gonna be very hard for this final thought but the Romantic era, if it's going to be anything like this going forward, which obviously, like, we, this is the beginning chronologically, so it's just going to get crazier and crazier from here. I am, I'm very hopeful for, for the stuff that we're going to hear, that we're going to hear things that are, that are even more fantastic, not to be um, redundant, or more just interesting and experimental and, and some interesting ideas to listen to. So on that front, that's, yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah, that's, this is going to be a good year for the history of music. So um, Hector Berlioz, didn't talk too much about him other than his gigantic ego and his awesome ability to instantly and talentedly, talent, talent, talently, talent, with talent, write some, <laughs> write some good music. I just... You gotta know when to quit. You gotta know when to 
to to to when to recognize that your the word you're searching for isn't a real word. It isn't talent talentfully. Talentedly. Talentedly. There we go. Ta da. Yeah, that's that's probably a word. See? I'm being made speechless by what's happening. And man, I mean, his ability to tie multiple different art forms, right? You got the you got the program music. That's just an interesting idea because that's not something that really happened. I mean, you had opera. That's kind of the closest thing, but you had actors and you had them singing things. It's not like you're making the music tell the story literally. And that is something really, really cool that you can have instrumentals have so much weight. I was thinking about that earlier today, that it's like to live is to die. Man, that is one of the greatest songs ever written by Metallica, right? But it is, it's instrumental. I mean, there's not a single stung word on it. There is spoken word, but I mean, that's maybe 30 seconds of the whole thing, tops. And it carries so much emotional weight. This is the same thing. I mean, there's no, there's no lyrics. There's just program notes. There, that's, that's the equivalent of liner notes or somebody explaining it in a YouTube comment, right? <laughs> yeah. And yet, a Reddit page somewhere. Yeah, it carries so much just emotional weight and interesting music and the ability to use instruments in ways that they haven't been used before to be both musical and sound effects. Man, what a great, what a great composer, Hector. Oh my goodness, Hector Berlioz, guys. And of course, Symphony Fantastique. What more is there to say about that? What more is there to say? So I'm not going to say anything. You guys should go listen to it. That's it. Did you, did you have a favorite <laughs> movement? Did I have a favorite movement? Oh, man. I really, I really did like four and five. It'd be really tough to pick between them. But I'd have to say, like, based off of the chills that you get from five, <laughs> from the net, from the, from the bell. Well, I mean, yeah, then, it's, I would, that's, that's what I would have guessed for you. It's the, it's definitely the most metal one. It's the bell. And then also those horn melodies that are like, that have these implied chords going underneath them with these like minor chords with ninth suspensions and like very well strung out many extensions implied chords. That was pretty interesting. That was really interesting. Um, and so obviously listening to that was very satisfying. And every time that those horn sections and clarinet sections and whatever came up, it was just like, wow, what, what good control of harmony and good control of, of chords. And it wasn't so much, it wasn't, I didn't pay attention to a lot of the themes because I didn't understand what themes I had to actually pay attention to, but man, yeah. Standalone. The fifth one was really good, but the fourth one is such a close second. First three are obviously really good, but like those fourth and fifth ones, they stand out, man. Oh boy. Do I have a favorite? Uh, do I have a or do I have a number for Hector Berlioz? I don't know. Um, I mean, how, how many more years until we get into numbers for these people? Um, probably when we start like dedicating like a whole episode on just like, hey, we're not doing this part of his music history, but 
Maybe when we get more into like genres later down the line. Ah. When it's when it's a just because I mean I would say mostly at this point it's gonna always be I'm a five now I'm probably at a six. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, I, I, I never heard of this before and now I know a little bit of it and I like it. <laughs> yeah. It's gonna be a, it'll be point. a little redundant. But man, it you gotta respect him and you gotta like it. And if this is his defining work, then man, he picked a good one to define him. Well, I guess he didn't pick it, but he got lucky. <laughs> Why people say it's the greatest post-Beethoven symphony? I I get it. I get it. Oh, boy, do I get it. Yeah. I may have to just listen to this again to just yeah. now that the story you, and everything. Now that you know, yeah, take take some time maybe tonight or tomorrow and just like sit through and just concentrate on it yeah and now just and 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 watch the story in your mind yeah i'm pretty sure i'm gonna do that tonight after we're done <laughs> that'll be fun that'll be yeah a lot of fun anyway okay. my final thoughts yes um so i did know who this was coming into this and i knew that the Symphony Fantastique existed. I never listened to it before. But I I knew I was going to start off the romantic period with it. It's just my instincts told me, yeah, go do this before, but you know, it might be good. I've just I've just learned to trust my instincts after a while of doing this. Cause I find that they just they they tend <laughs> to steer me right. Uh, because I had no idea about the story and everything that was in it. Like, I literally had no idea what treasure I had just stumbled upon. And I think now this might be my favorite symphonic work that I've ever heard. Wow. Like, Beethoven used to be my favorite. Like, the whole Symphony Number no. 5. I... I Sounds very cliche to say that, but it's just it's it's iconic for a reason. I but don't I know Symphony Number no. Nine. I'm on the Symphony Number no. Nine gang. Yeah, I just haven't listened yeah. to that one as much because it's so long. Yeah, that's true. That's true. When each movement is like thirty minutes long, and there's four <laughs> of them, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, but man, the, the Symphony Fantastique is just, I've never heard anything like this before. It is something that I was just like, I didn't know that like music existed like this back then. I feel like all these concepts that we were looking at is just like, this is what crazy people now do. Yeah, that's this a good point. A, this is something that a weird highbrow prog band would write. And someone did this back in the early 1800s. And yeah, did... you even got the drug-induced, like, trips. Yeah. Like, complete with the satanic rituals and everything. I mean, just, like, the fact that all that is in here, I'm just like, how did I miss this? How have yeah. I not listened to this before? How is this not my favorite? And and all of those metal guys that are like, oh, yeah, Bach. Oh, yeah, Beethoven. They don't ever talk about this. No, like, this is, like... This is this is the metal is the house that Berlioz built, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just I was just 
This is one of the most shocked I've ever been after listening to an artist. Because again, like I came into this with going, this is just going to be now, it's going to be just another old music history. Not that I wasn't excited, but I wasn't expecting to get this. This was like, this was mind blowing how good it was and how crazy and, and modern it was. Mm-hmm. I just I I've never heard anything like this before. Closest I can think of is is literally like a prog metal album. Yeah, and then just on a pure musical level, it's it's one of the most well written things I've ever heard. Um, and I I now want to really listen to a lot of Berlioz's other stuff because I've heard lots of good things about his other stuff just to say that this is his best doesn't mean that everything else is underwhelming in comparison. It's so now it's, I'm really curious to see what his other things sound like. It's so weird. Cause like during the whole classical period, we were talking about like, Oh yeah, pop and how pop music is like good melodies and people can remember it. And now as soon as we went to the romantic era, we're talking about like metal bands and like every reference we had was to a metal band. It's not it's not the last time, I know. <laughs> oh but it's not gonna all be like this. I know that for sure. Like uh next week, I would say the next three not next week, but the next three months is gonna be much more mellow in comparison. Hmm. We're gonna we're gonna um we're gonna talk about Schubert next month. Franz Franz Schubert that's right and then after that we're going to spend a couple of months on romantic piano we're going to do Liszt and we're going to do Chopin oh what was Chopin's first name don't say it was Franz no Frederick oh so we get the the three F's get the three F's Two Franz and a Frederick walked into a bar. Oh, that's like Ed, Ed, and Eddie. But then we're gonna we're gonna be dynamite after that week because we're gonna we're gonna go back to opera. Ooh. Spend we're gonna spend, we're gonna spend three months on opera. Ooh, man! So there's some there's some interesting things in the hopper. Yep, and then after that we'll do uh, dance music. Dance music. Oh, that kind of dance, not like yeah. electronic music. No. <laughs> and then we'll do uh, we'll do lullabies. Whoa! And, and soft music. Whoa! And then we're gonna get really spooky and talk about uh, a musician that made a deal with the devil. It's perfect Ooh. in time for Halloween. Ooh, Robert Johnson. Not quite. Yeah this this was the man before Robert Johnson. But that's all I'm going to say. And then um, in November, since it'll be nice and Christmassy again, we'll end with, uh, I'll just say we'll end with Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker and talk about ballet. That's pretty cool. We got like, we got like the full itinerary. I know. And this is every time we're going to be, even like in the stuff where I'm just like, we're going to spend a couple months. It's an opera. Every episode is going to be wildly different sounding. Oh, that's going to be awesome. So, like, I I made sure I was just like, I'm going to 
because I, I got this crazy idea. I was just like, oh, if I could stretch this out for a year, I could end the year with with Nutcracker because it's Christmas. Well, I mean, it's, it's and I was like, OK, I was like, OK, what could I do each month? And so I planned the whole month out and I was just like, oh, this is going to be awesome. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. I'm so excited for the year. The romantic period has always been my as far as like all these time periods. I've been waiting to get to this point. Because this is this is when everything just gets wacky awesome. Just enough experimental to be weird and just enough tangible to be palatable. <laughs> yeah. That's that's where the good stuff lies. I agree. Mm-hmm. So all right. What what a what an introductory episode. Yeah. We're we're starting off the year strong, that's for sure. Thank you everyone so much for listening to this episode. If you liked what you heard, make sure you hit the subscribe button. We have new episodes every Monday at midnight. Um next week is going to start off a a special themed month. I haven't even told you about this yet, Grant. Oh. Um, because February is Black History Month, we are going to be looking exclusively at African American artists in the month of February, Ooh. except for our music history, of course. But we're going to be kicking off with one of the great music icons. We're going to be returning to. It's going to be really fun. I've already done a lot of my research for it, and we got some really cool and weird songs to talk about. Yeah, I've already heard some of them. This is going to be a good episode. It's going to be a good volume two. Yeah, so make sure you check in for that. Um, leave us a review. Let us know what you think about the podcast as well as that's a great place to let us know what episodes you would like for us to talk about in the future. And um, you can also check us out on Instagram and Facebook. That is the best place to get a hold of us to uh, put in your suggestions. We want to hear what episodes you guys want. It gives us uh, a lot of ideas about people maybe that we wouldn't even think to do. So and we, we want to we do who you guys are wanting. And uh, make sure you check out both the links. One takes you to that Spotify playlist. The other one to our Patreon. We don't have a bad music segment this week we usually don't for our uh music history episodes i can't rank an entire genre or time period worst to best that would be literally impossible yep so um maybe that'll start happening once we get like into the mid 1900s when talking about subgenres and sub subgenres but yeah, even then still. that's a, that's a really strong maybe that's still multiple artists' discographies. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe at that point I'll have done so many of these ranked playlists. Oh, good point. You could just that, compile them. Yeah. Or at least maybe I can just say, I'm not going to rank all of them, but here's six really bad songs from this time period. That still could be fun. That could be. So we'll see. See how I'm feeling. But uh, the other benefit to the Patreon is that you can listen to episodes early. You can hear them Friday instead of Monday, and that's always cool. Yeah. And who knows, you know, if if we can uh, devote some more time to where we can concentrate less on other stuff that we do and more time on this, maybe we'll come up with some more exclusive content. I'd love to do those, record those cover songs again. 
Oh, man. Yeah, I would too. So, who knows? Who knows what'll happen? Stay tuned. And we'll see you guys next week. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. Keep on listening to good music.